Hey guys. So, our Bible reading will be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Uh, this can be found on page 13 of your booklets, right with the talk outline. Um, yeah, so it saves you from opening up your Bible. But if you want to do that, feel free to do so as well. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as us, even who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us before Him, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillness fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works through all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the, to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. It is great that we can be together to hear the voice of God. And given that we've just heard him speak to us in the scriptures, it's good to communicate with him and ask that he might indeed so speak to our hearts now as we hear it more. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather here this night. Thank you, Father, for enabling us to get here safely. Thank you for the seminars, the manuscript discoveries, and already the chance to meet one another. We pray now that you'll please prepare our hearts. Help us to listen carefully. Help me to speak your truth faithfully. And help us all, we pray, to respond in a manner that is truly pleasing to you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Two weeks ago, we had a staff conference for the AFES nationally. And we met at Stanwell Tops, not far from Wollongong. And on the Thursday afternoon, one of our staff, who came from Perth, went on a bushwalk to enjoy his introvert time, his alone time. To cut a long story short, he got lost. Every directional decision he made got him further and further away from the main track. And wait for it, he was lost for six hours. It was pitch black at points, his phone went dead, and he was in the middle of nowhere. Eventually he found himself to a, uh, near a railway bridge and he had an Apple Watch, so he climbed up one of the pillars there, but he couldn't really you know, get on to the top. He just climbed up enough, and there was enough of a signal on the Apple Watch that had SOS on it, because there was no reception, but you can still call triple O on it. So he called triple O on it, and eventually, in the kindness of God, he was found. 
but he was pretty shaken up. Stanwell tops, yeah? Now, in many ways, this is a parable for us this week because we're all here to find our way. On our bushwalk of life, we can be equally lost as to the decisions we make. You know, what am I going to do when I graduate? Some of us are wondering if we're going to graduate. Will I marry? Should I marry? If so, whom? Where do I work? Should I travel? There are so many decisions that we don't know the answer to, and sometimes we feel that we have no resources to make these decisions. The answers are not on our iPhones. The Bible doesn't seem to have the exact answers that I want, clear answers. And coming to this conference is kind of like calling triple O. Doctor Who, a.k.a. Samuel Mills, said to me on Sunday at church, he said, Richard, no pressure, but no one's making any decisions until the end of this week. Right? I think, thanks, Sam. That's great. You know, No pressure at all. Where is God leading you? Where is God leading us? Well, you looked a little bit at that in your seminar today. But before we look at where God is leading us, which is the subject of tomorrow night, I want us to look at the God who is leading us. The God who is leading us. Because, you see, there's no point wanting to go where he goes unless you actually trust that what he says is trustworthy. Who is the God who leads us? Well, in the passage that was read out for us from Ephesians, uh, we've got the text written in front of you because that's in the English Standard Version, and that's the version I'll be using, especially in Ephesians, which will be the backbone of our week. But from time to time, as I said before, we'll be looking at a number of other passages, and more so tonight than any other night. But firstly, look at Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 3 on page 13 in your booklets. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please note firstly who God is from these verses alone. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. In verse 2, he is also our Father. Now let that sit with you for a moment. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, we share the same Father. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places And we're going to come to that. But here's the big point. I'm so kind to you. I'm giving it to you right up front. The God who leads us is the loving, sovereign Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The loving, sovereign Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that this truth will intellectually and emotionally stagger you by the end of this evening. And stagger you so much that it will compel you to go wherever God is leading you. And I say wherever. As we plummet the depths of Scripture. Now as... I think most of us will know, the Bible opens with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But have you ever wondered what God was doing before he created the heavens and the earth? That ever come to your mind? Well, do you know the Bible actually tells us what he was doing? Turn with me to John chapter 17. So this in your own Bibles. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so it may be a little different to yours, uh, but bear with me uh, and listen carefully if it's a little different. John 17, verse 4. John 17, verse 4. 
So we're going to do a bit of Bible flipping. Now, if you're not used to finding books in the Bible, please do not be embarrassed, okay? It may be that you just have by uh, not had the opportunity that the rest of us have. So if you're not used to that, that's fine. Just ask someone next to you or just look over their shoulder and they should be showing you how to do it anyway because we're all loving each other. We're spreading the love, not germs, but love, right? And opening the Bibles, John 17, and there's no embarrassment at all to go to the contents page either. Okay? We're in chapter 17, book of John, verse 4. Jesus speaking to his Father. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Please note that Jesus existed with God in glory before he created the world. Right. He existed with his Father. And furthermore, if you go to the end of chapter 17 to verse 24... Verse 24 of chapter 17, we read Jesus continuing to say, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see what he's saying? His desire is for those and his disciples in particular to see his glory. But note, to see my glory, verse 24, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is, before God created and ruled the world, before anything else, God was a father loving and glorifying his son. Before the world was made, God the Father was loving God the Son. In all his glory. That is, God the Father was not lonely. God was not lonely. He didn't create the world because he was lonely. That's the silly plot of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is very, very silly in the end. And I don't care spoiling the plot for you because it's just so silly. Right? Because God is not lonely, He loved His Son. The Son loved the Father. For all eternity, God has been loving His Son. The Father's been loving the Son. The Son's been loving the Father. And the most foundational thing about God is not that He is the creator or the ruler or the judge. Rather, the most foundational thing about God is that He is the loving Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He is Father all the way down. As all that he does, he does as Father. That is who he is. He creates as the loving Father. He rules as the loving Father. He judges through the Son as the loving Father. He is Father. Now, given a crowd this size, I suspect there'll be some among us who have not experienced a loving Father. Perhaps he never really encouraged you. Perhaps your father was never really around. Perhaps he left your mum or passed away when you were very young. Perhaps even he was abusive or wicked. And if any of this is true for you, I really am very sorry. Because that's awful. I can't empathize because I haven't got a father like that. My father is not a believer. 
but he is kind and generous and continues to love me with all his heart and his belongings. He just keeps on giving us things all the time. He decided to give us a wobble board just because it was on sale and he bought it for himself but didn't think he needed it, so he just gave it to us. We just keep on getting things like that all the time. You know, wobble boards, foot massages, you name it, that kind of thing. He loves me. He loves our family, even though he's not a believer. But I don't know what your father is like, but can I say this? That God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. It's the other way around. The God who leads us is the true and loving Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that human fathers are meant to follow, not the other way around. And it is at the, as the Father that he creates the world. Right, we get a hint of this in Genesis chapter 1. So this is where we start getting uh, the flipping going, but I hope to do it in a chronological fashion. So we're going to start at the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Genesis 1 verse 26. We know that he creates the world by his word in six days. At the end of each day, he says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And good means according to God's will. It doesn't mean what I think is good. It's what God thinks is good. Right. Now have a look at verse 26 now, chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now who's the us there? See, here is a hint that God is not alone, as it were, in the first chapter of the Bible. Well, we go on to read, And let them, that is, man, humanity, made in his image, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God creates humanity as an us. There's a hint that there is plurality in this one God. And he creates humanity and blesses humanity to live as his image bearers, ruling the world as his representatives in relationship to God. That is, humanity is blessed by God and is led by God by his loving rule. But as the story unfolds, humanity chooses not to be led by God. Instead of following his loving lead, they choose to lead themselves, spiral into greater and greater depths of despair and sin, involving the promise of death. And then there is the flood. And then they continue in their rebellion after the flood, despite God's grace to Noah and his family. And this humanity grows and grows to the point where they want to make a name for themselves. And so they create a tower, the Tower of Babel, you might recall. And God scatters them in judgment into a world with different people groups and different languages. But God doesn't give up on his people. Instead, he longs to bless them. And so God led one man in particular, a man by the name of Abram. So please turn with me now to Genesis chapter 12. Now, if you're not really familiar with how the whole Bible fits together, these are some of the key verses you need to keep on highlighting. So Genesis 1, 26, 28 is a highlight kind of verse. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3 are those kinds of highlights as well. And you need to get to know these verses really, really well. Have a look there at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
Now note the command of God. It is the command to this man, Abram, to leave his country. But please note, when God commanded Abram to do this, he wasn't just asking him to change addresses. He wasn't just saying, you live in the highlands, just ask, go down to Wollongong and live there for a little while. He's not saying, you live in the Shire? Go to, oh no, it's impossible for you. you, know, <laughs> he, didn't, you know, he didn't say, just change addresses. If you were to ask a Kenyan man or woman what their name is, it is likely that they will say something of their name that will not only identify what people are to call them, but will also identify their father's name, their tribe, their ethnicity, and their land, where they belong and where they're likely to be buried. It's all contained in their name. Right. At a very deep level, the name describes who they are. It describes their very identity, which is tied to the land, their kindred, their, their food, everything. Now, so too here, when God asks Abram to leave his country and kindred, his father's house and his land, he is asking Abram to give up his very identity, to give up everything. Now, how would you have responded if you were Abram? Give up your extended family. You know, leave your family home. Leave your country, your food, your way of life, your very identity. Give it all up. That's a big ask, isn't it? But when God commands Abram to do that, he also gives promises. What are his promises? Verse 2. And I, God, will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you and bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God promises to bless Abram with each of these things, a new land, a new name, a new family, a new identity. But like God, it's an outgoing identity. It's a loving identity. See, what I mean is that with his new identity, Abram and his new family are to be outwardly focused. Did you note that? A blessing to all the families of the earth, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's an outwardly focused blessing. So how did Abram find his way? He wasn't any more righteous than anyone else, really. He lied. He was selfish in a number of ways. He failed as a husband. He failed as a father. He failed as an uncle. He failed as a leader. But there was one very important thing that he did right. He trusted God's promises. He actually trusted them. He trusted God's promises to bless him in all these ways. And God kept his promises to bless him. He gave Abram's family a new identity. He gave Abram's family a new land, ultimately, offspring and blessings and to be a blessing to the nations. And he sovereignly blessed them, even in the face of evil. At the end of the book of Genesis, Abram's family consists of 12 of his great-grandsons and their families, who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Over here, there, there used to be a cult group called the 12 tribes, I think. Or is that that cult group? Anyway, there is a cult group called the 12 tribes, right? It's kind of based on this idea. But these are the real 12 tribes, right? They come from Abram. Now, what happens towards the end of the book of Genesis is that there are 12 brothers, but in just Ten of those brothers plot evil against one of those brothers. That brother's name is Joseph. You know, Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph? That's the story, right? Ten brothers plot evil against this one brother, the second youngest brother. 
But God sovereignly used their evil for good by enabling Joseph to become the means of their salvation. So if you go to the end of Genesis now, Genesis chapter 50, Genesis 50, chapter 50, so towards the end. In fact, it's the very last page, I think, in the book of Genesis. And pick it up at verse 15. 15, let me read you the account of what takes place here. This is drought, another characteristic of our great God who is the loving, sovereign Father. It says verse 15, Genesis 50, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God used the evil of the brothers ultimately for the good of all his people in saving them. What they plotted as evil, God used for good. In other words, God is sovereign over everything, including evil. God, our Father, who loved his Son from all eternity for eternity, is also in, in control of everything, including evil. He is sovereign, and he is lovingly sovereign as our Father. God is at work in all things, all things, for the good of those who love him. And you have no idea how God is at work in these things. Now, I, have, I can think back to my life. I wonder whether you can think back to yours as to what sort of things that have happened that you really didn't like at the time, but when you look back, you kind of think, wow, I dodged a bullet back then. I didn't realize that, but... That was evil, but God used it for good somehow. I can remember a time when I sat my HSC some time before I went to mid-year conference. And uh, at that time, I, physics was my best subject. Right? And there was an electronic section, which was my best bit of physics. Uh, and in the HSC, I actually well, misread one of the symbols and I failed that section completely. Completely, right? My best subject, which meant that I didn't get into the university of my choice, but end up going to another university. Evil, right? It was pure evil that took place. But somehow or other, God used that pure evil to bring about good because, you see, I ended up going to a university where I went to a mid-year conference like this and I heard the gospel there and became a Christian. It was unbelievable. Let's actually look back and think what could have happened at the time. Now, it's only in hindsight that I can see that kind of thing, right? But I don't know whether you can piece together how things may have happened differently. Not that it would have happened differently, but it could have. But you see how God had worked in that to bring about something that is good now? You see, that, that's what God's doing here in, in amazing ways in the, in the life of Joseph. As God sovereignly blessed Abram's family even by using evil for their salvation. And he sovereignly led the people of Israel through the exodus into their new land as their father. In fact, he called the nation of Israel his firstborn son. And he sovereignly led his firstborn son, the people of Israel, as their loving father. And he blessed them with human leaders to lead them like judges and prophets and priests and kings. But one king that stood out among them all was King David. He was the second king in the life of Israel. And why was he particularly chosen? Well, simply because he was. It's not because David was particularly good. It wasn't because he was fancy. He was rugged and good-looking, we're told. But pff, who cares? But he was chosen by God, and God made particular promises to David. At the height of his reign, God sent the prophet Nathan to David. So now turn with me 
to the right. I'm just trying to go to the right now to make it easier, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, this is starting to get tricky for those who aren't familiar with their Bibles, but if you're not, please go to the contents page. But 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8. And here's a, a little section from which we hear the promises of God to King David at the height of his reign. Verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. Does that sound familiar? Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Does that sound familiar? And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be distributed, sorry, disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. Note, a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you see the promises of God to King David? He's going to give King David a great name. He's going to give David a place for his people to dwell in, rest from all his enemies, and a house. There are two meanings to the word house, by the way, here. A house could be a place, a, a, a thing, a building, namely the temple, right? the temple of God, where God was to dwell with his people. But the house could also mean a family, a dynasty. And I think it's both here. Right? I'm going to establish for you a dynasty, a house, a family. But I'm also going to have your son build a house for me, namely the temple. And David, here's the really special promise. Your offspring, the one who's going to sit on your throne and every other person who's going to sit on your throne, I'm going to have a special relationship with your offspring. In fact, I'm going to be a father to them, and they're going to be my son. He's going to have a special relationship as father and son with the offspring of David who rise to the throne. In other words, every person who sits on the throne of David will have this title, this special relationship with God, where God is his father, but they will have a special title too. That title is called son. No, son of God. Hang on a minute, I thought Son of God was just Jesus. No, 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 no. Son of God is a title that applies to every king who sat on the throne of King David. Right, get that into your heads. Title Son of God is not particular to Jesus alone. It applies to every king who sat on the throne of King David. Son of God. Right. So, Let's to get interactive here. Who are the sons of David who sat on his throne? Anybody over here just call out a name? Solomon. He's a son of God. Who? Josiah is a son of God. Hezekiah is a son of God too. But yes, let's go for Josiah and Hezekiah. Okay. They're both sons, they're all sons of God. Who did you call out, Daniel? Rehoboam is a son of God. Yeah. They're all sons of God, do you see? They all sat on the throne of King David. There's Jehoiachin. Why didn't anybody mention him? He's a son of God, right? 
He's a bad son of God, but he's a son of God, right? Jehoiakim, right? South Korean versions. Jehoiakim, son of God. They beat Germany, by the way. <laughs> son of God, right? They're titles of the promises that come from God to David here. Do you see? It's a title. They, they have God as their father. But all these guys, they have peaks at some point, but they're failures in the end, aren't they? They don't have a great name in the end. Solomon did for, a, it feels like a, maybe a weekend where he got things right. You know, it, but, but things started to crack down the, and he started to do all sorts of silly things. Like, how many wives did he have? Anybody know? 700 wives, right? 700 wives. And he also had concubines. You know what a concubine is? A wife you have when you're not having a wife kind of wife, right? He had 300 of those. That's a thousand women to look after. That's crazy, isn't it? And he followed the gods of those wives. How foolish is that? Sure, he's the son of God. He's got God as his father. But he's as foolish as, well, all the rest that follow him as well. They were high points in his life, yeah? He was the wisest man in all the earth. But he failed. And in the end, the people of God, they, they rebelled. So it, it, the kingdom of 12 tribes tore into two. There was a split. The 10 northern tribes, they went off to the north and they rebelled against the, the, the two kingdoms in the south, the two tribes in the south. The 10 northern tribes, in the end, because of their rebellion, they kept on committing idolatry. Every king in the north, by the way, was bad. Not one of them was good at any point in time. They could sing the Michael Jackson song, I'm bad, I'm bad, you know it, I'm bad, because they're all bad in the north, right? None of them are good. In the south, there's a few that are good, but you know, by and large, they're bad. And then so because of their rebellion, they, they get judged by God and they take, get taken off into exile. And you get through the darkest period in the exiles, both in the north and the south, and there's no great name, there's no land for a period of time. Even when they return, they still had enemies. There's no rest, there's no fulfillment, there's no preserving distinctive identity, there's no blessings. So what about the promises of God? What about God's promise to Abram? What about God's promises to David? Where's this son Well, a thousand years after David, an angel met with a teenage girl named Mary. And look what the angel said in Luke 1. Come now to Luke in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. Luke 1 and verse 30. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. And the angel, the angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, who better to be the son of God than God the son, Jesus? The son of God is a title coming out of 2 Samuel 7. But no one fulfills that except for God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And cast your mind back to Genesis 12. What were the blessings that God promised to Abram? To have a new identity, a new family, a new name, a new land, and to be the channel of blessing to others. Well, this is echoed more specifically in his promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, involving an inheritance where there would be rest from his enemies. And here we're told that these blessings are basically all fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, the Christ. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposed 
blessings for Israel and for David and ultimately for all the families of the earth, all the nations through Israel. Right? It's the blessings through Israel to the nations in Jesus. You see, there's a dynamic movement of blessing from Israel to the nations because of who Jesus is and what he has done as the beloved Son of God. And we're going to look at this more closely tomorrow, but please know where we stand in history. We're the Johnny Come Latelys. If you're not Jewish by descent, please know how incredibly blessed you are. Because the only reason we're blessed is because of the promise that God made to Abram, to the people of Israel, to be a blessing to the nations. And we're, we're amongst the nations, right? We're amongst these nations that include you and me. No matter what country we come from, whether it's India or Sri Lanka or China or Singapore or Malaysia or Japan or Canada or Brazil or South Africa or South Korea or anything in the South, and including Australia. We're the nations. We're the ones who have been blessed because of Abram. And these blessings are ours because of what our loving Father has done in fulfilling these promises to Abram and to David in Jesus. And these blessings are spiritual blessings. See, now we come back to the book of Ephesians. So you've come back to your booklet on page 13 so that we're all in the same version. If you don't have the English Standard Version, please come back to this because this will be helpful for us, I hope and pray. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. See, that's all the background I hope that makes you appreciate. When he says in verse 3 on page 13 of your booklet, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places we should be thinking about Genesis 12 we should be thinking about 2 Samuel 7 because all those blessings are there over and over again these blessings but note here that they are spiritual blessings now what does that mean that they're spiritual blessings I don't think it means that they're spiritual as opposed to material blessings you know that it's a contrast between body and spirit these is not bodily blessings these are spiritual blessings I don't think there's a you know, difference between what is material and what is immaterial rather I think they're spiritual in the sense that they are blessings of the age of the spirit what do I mean by that well we now live in the age of the spirit because the spirit has been poured out upon us in Acts chapter 2. So if you've been following us in the uni Bible group, you might recall we've been working through the book of Acts. The Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2 and now we live in the age of the Spirit because the Spirit is at work Why in His people. If we are Christians, we have the Spirit of the Father and the Son, actually. The Spirit of the risen Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the age of the Spirit. So these are spiritual blessings, blessings in this age. It is speaking about the stage of history when the Spirit has been poured out. The days we live in now, ever since the days of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we are in the age of the Spirit, the age of the fulfillment of Jesus. Secondly, these spiritual blessings in Christ have been given to us not only the age of the Spirit, but also note in the heavenly places there at the end of verse 3. What does that mean, the heavenly places? Well, I don't think it's actually heaven in the sense of the new creation because the new creation hasn't come. It's heaven where Jesus is, as it were. We're told that that's where Jesus is in the heavenly places. But if you were to look at chapter 6, verse 12, just write that down, chapter 6, verse 12, and look at it later on, that's also where the evil spiritual forces dwell in the heavenly places. How can the evil spiritual forces dwell with Jesus? Well, it's a bit complicated to, to think through that. But it's the arena of Christ's victory over sin and death, even though the spiritual forces of evil dwell there. So it's not only referring to the place where Jesus dwells at the right hand of God, but also to the place where 
where other forces are, but it's where God still has his victory in Jesus. But that's also where we've got our spiritual blessings. It's not exactly the same as heaven, but a kind of spatial equivalent of the now but not yet. Of the now but not yet. What do I mean by the now but not yet? See, now we experience in part what we will experience in full on the last day. Evil forces still influence now, but the blessings we will enjoy in full without evil forces on the last day can still be enjoyed now. We can still experience these spiritual blessings in Christ now. And what are these blessings? Well, verses 3 to 14 is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, but it just comes in one complex sentence, but there are five blessings so here we go. If you've got your note taking there, under point three there, it's blessings. I'm going to make five points in there. So if you want to divide it up, if you're the kind of neat type who really has to be anally retentive and have it all exactly right, five points are going to go there. So you can buy five bullet points. First bullet point. First blessing, God chose us before creation to be holy and blameless. He chose us before creation to be holy and blameless. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, right, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us before creation to be holy and blameless. Just let that sink in for a moment. If you are a Christian here tonight, God chose you. When did he chose you? choose you? Before time began. Before he said, let there be light, he chose you. Before human history began, he chose you. As he was loving his son in all eternity, he was loving us before creation was made. He chose us to be holy and blameless. Now that might actually be a brand new concept to you tonight, for the first time. If that is a brand new concept, as it was for me the first time I heard it, that just exploded my brain. God chose me before the world was made? Ponder that. That's a blessing. Let me tell you why it's a blessing. Because of the second blessing. The second one is predestined us for adoption. Predestined us for adoption. Just before the small number five there, you read, in love. Look what it says. In love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Do you see what the second blessing is? He determined for you to be his adopted children before he created the world. That's love. He did that in love. Does that make you feel loved? Well, it should. See, if you're an adopted child, please know that unlike those of us who are natural children, you were handpicked over all the others. If you're a natural child... You could have been an accident, a loving accident. But you weren't especially chosen. But if you're adopted, you're specially chosen. Chosen above all others. That's special. And you, like the rest of us, can call the creator of the universe Father. There's a book there called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a terrific read. And I commend that as a book that you should buy if you do not own a copy. They're very thick kind of ideas, and they're packed and they're dense. They're packer-densed. But he persuasively argues in his book on, uh, there's a chapter on I think it's called the sons of God or adoption, sons of God. Yeah, I'm getting a nod from Rob, so that must be absolutely right. Called the sons of God. And in it, he writes 
knowing God as our Father is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. The highest privilege. Higher even than justification. Why is that? Because justification, the idea that God declares us to be right with him, that God declares us to be right with him because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> that's a pretty high blessing, right? But that's a forensic idea, kind of based on the law courts. Whereas adoption, that's a family idea that we can call God Father. And if you are a Christian here tonight, God chose you in love to be a part of his family. Crazy, huh? What's the third blessing? First one, he chose us before creation to be holy and blameless. Secondly, he predestined us for adoption. Thirdly, he redeemed and forgave us through the death of Jesus. He redeemed and forgave us through the death of Jesus. Verse 7, verse 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He lavished upon us. If you are a Christian here tonight, you will know what it is like to be convicted of our own sins. If we dig enough into our hearts, we know the evil in our hearts. Don't we? Time does not deal with the fact or the guilt of our evil within, of our sin. But the blessing is that Jesus does deal with the fact and guilt of our sin. Because Jesus gave and gave and gave to the point of death where he took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved. He paid to buy us back with his own blood in order to forgive us according to the riches of his grace. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, if you are bathing in guilt for whatever you have done in your life, all you need to do is ask God for forgiveness. And by his grace, his undeserved generosity, he will forgive you. In fact, he says, he lavishes, did you see that? He lavishes his grace upon us. He lavished upon us. There, beginning of verse 8, which he lavished upon us. I don't know whether you think about lavishing. I've got a friend who describes lavishing as the amount of Nutella he puts on his toast. You know, it's about a centimeter thick. That's kind of lavishing. What do you lavish in? Maybe you hate Nutella, but it's something else. You lavish in, I don't know, bath water. I don't know what it is. Bubble bath. What do you lavish in? Do you lavish in? Walking, watching soccer at, at odd hours of the morning all day or night and kind of walking around like a zombie, you're lavish in that. What, what do you lavish in? What is it that's lavished upon you? Well, God has lavished his grace. His undeserved generosity is just lavished on you. Not because of anything you've done or I've done. That's the difference between Christianity and any other religion, isn't it? In every other religion, you have to do something to be forgiven. You have to do something to be saved. You have to be good or you have to be religious or you have to do this, that or the other. Otherwise, I can't get there. Whereas God has done everything in the person and work of Jesus Christ and because he's done it, then all I need to do is trust that and be saved and be forgiven. It's got nothing to do with my goodness. It's got everything to do with God's goodness, what he has done and he's forgiven us lavished his grace on us. You see why that's a blessing? Fourthly, 
He's revealed his climactic plan to us in Jesus. He's revealed his climactic plan to us in Jesus. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here's his plan, his climactic plan, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, he didn't need to reveal anything to us, but he did reveal it to us. He has included us in his inner circle. Even the angels long to look into these things that we take for granted, but he's made it known to us that one day all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Jesus, under Jesus. One day that will be the case. We're going to look a lot about this tonight. In fact, this is everything about decision-making has got to do with this verse, and I hope I'll show it to you tomorrow night. But please know that God doesn't have to reveal anything to us, but he has. Trouble is, we keep on searching elsewhere for his plan, don't we? It's all contained in the Bible, but we want to look elsewhere. You know, if the phone rings, you don't answer it by putting your head in the microwave oven, do you? I think God has spoken. I don't want to look anywhere outside. I just want to look elsewhere, not look at the Bible. But he's revealed everything in the Bible. He's revealed his climactic plan in Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. And his plan is to unite everything in heaven and on earth in Christ. That's an amazing plan. In him, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, that Christ should be the head of all, his purpose to fulfill. Creation is heading towards a climax in which everything and everyone will come under the headship of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you are already in the place to which all of creation is heading. In Christ! And God keeps us in his inner circle through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The inheritance that was first promised to Israel is now promised to the nations And so here's the fifth and final blessing in this section. He's given us his Holy Spirit to guarantee our inheritance. He's given us his Holy Spirit to guarantee our inheritance. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Although we have not received our inheritance of heaven now, God has given himself to us in the person of his spirit to foreshadow heaven, to guarantee heaven. Remember, what makes heaven heaven is not geography, but knowing and being with God as our loving, sovereign Father. See, here is our new identity that God sovereignly blessed us with in the overflowing love of his Godhead, as it were. An overflowing love that was first seen in his promises to Abram and to David and now ultimately spreads through to us, through Israel, to the nations. And please note how we can experience all these blessings. They are all in Christ, aren't they? We're adopted as children through Christ, verse 3. We're blessed In the beloved, verse 6, it's in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, verse 7. Unite all things in Jesus, verse 10. In Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11. In Jesus you also were sealed with the Holy Spirit, verse 12. It's all in Jesus. It's all being with Jesus. All these spiritual blessings originally intended for Abram, for Israel, for David, were also intended and secured for us among the nations by our loving Father in Jesus. Jesus. See, the God who leads us, he's not aloof. He's not uncaring. He's not some distant deity who only wants us to obey his rules. He's not some killjoy who just makes you want to be upset and lonely and just, you know, people with no friends because you're just so weird compared to the rest of the world. No, he's not out to make life hard for us for the sake of making life hard for us. The Father is the source of all the love we see in Jesus. All the love. So how will you find your way? How will you know where God is leading you? What to do after university? What to do if you find someone? Do you marry them or not? Or where to live? 
Well, the more fundamental question is, do you know this God as your father? Do you actually know him as your father? Because if he's not your father, then who do you look to ultimately to lead you? Because if you're not sure, then tonight is the right night to actually do something about it. It may be that you've grown up in a Christian family, you go to a terrific Christian church, but he really isn't your father. I can tell you countless stories of people who've been to this very conference over all the years who've grown up in Christian families and gone to fantastic churches. It was only at mid-year conference that they actually made that decision to turn to Jesus as their Lord and know God as their Father. And if you're here tonight and you're unsure, but you know it's the right thing to know God as Father and, and you're so sad that you don't know, well, tonight's a great night to come to know him. And I want to lead us in a prayer, a short prayer, to indeed come to know God as your Father. Let me, let me share with you what the prayer is. It says, Dear Father, please forgive me for not living for you as my Father. Thank you that Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. Please help me to live for you as my Father and Jesus as my Lord and Savior from now on. It's a very simple prayer, isn't it? There's nothing magical about the words. But if you know that this is your prayer tonight, then please pray it with me now. And then I want to say a few words after that. But if you know that God is not your father and you want him to be your father, then please pray this prayer with me. I'm going to pray this prayer sentence by sentence and you can echo it in your head and your heart to God in silence. And then God will answer. You pray with me for a few moments? If this is your prayer, let's pray. Dear Father, please forgive me for not living for you as my Father. Thank you that Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. Please help me to live for you as my Father and Jesus as my Lord and Saviour from now on. Amen. Can I say that if you pray that prayer sincerely, earnestly, and God has answered in fact, it actually says that God is rejoicing before the angels. Not just the angels, but God himself is rejoicing. And I'd love you to talk to someone about that. Please come and talk to me. Or if you're not sure and you want to find out more, come and talk to any of the people who've been leading the seminars just this very afternoon. But just a few words now to those of you who do know him, know God as your father. I want to ask you, do you really want to be led by this Father? Let me ask you this curious question. When you pray, how do you address God when you pray? Do you say, hey God, or yo God, or, how's it going man? You know, uh, How do you address God? What did Jesus say? Pray like this, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. If you know God as your Father, can I encourage you to address him as your Father in prayer? He's not just a hey God. He's Father. John Owen, a Puritan Christian of years, years ago, wrote this, he says, If the love of the Father will not make a child delight in him, what will? If we truly know God as our sovereign Father through Jesus, then we can trust 
his character. We can rely on his sovereign will to guide us even in the face of evil. We can joyfully meditate in what he says and in what he does not say. We can delight ultimately in where he is leading us by his son through his spirit in his most holy, complete, sufficient word of God in the scriptures. And more of that to come in the nights ahead. When my friend was lost in the bush at Stanwell Tops, cold and pitch black at times, what he knew for certain, and this I quote from him, what he knew for certain is that he would either have a great sermon illustration or that he would become a great sermon illustration. They were his words. But what he knew even more certainly was that the God he knew as Father was in total control. He did get anxious at points, but he actually trusted God enough to know that whatever happens, God was in total control regarding his future. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that he's got everything, everything covered in terms of your future? Do you trust him with that? I know some of you, you're not sure what to do after this week, are you? You're not sure even whether you're going to get a job or whether I should say yes to this person or not or, or what should I do you know, beyond this time. And there's a certain level of angst about that. But can I ask you, do you trust God as your father? to care for all the little things and the seemingly big things. You see, everything is in his hands. And maybe that be the case for us to trust God regarding our future like my brother, our brother, did when he was lost in the bush. No matter what's going to happen. Because we can trust Jesus no matter what we go through for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. We thank you, dear Father, that you are sovereign and that in your love you have lavished your grace upon us in blessing us over and over again in Jesus and we pray that you will help us therefore to trust you with everything everything in our future knowing that you care and that whatever happens will be best for us but ultimately for your glory and we pray this for Jesus sake Amen